Hello, everyone. We are back last week. If you were uh, joining us, we actually ended the stream a little bit early because I had a doozy of an ear infection. Ended up being pretty brutal. I woke up the next morning with blood coming out of my ear and everything seems to be okay right now, except for in this ear, everything is a little bit higher pitched than in this ear. So it's like a, not quite a not quite a, a, a semitone. It's like a like a, a quarter step higher. So um, I'm making sure to have uh, this earbud in so that you guys don't sound like munchkins. So that being <laughs> said, welcome back. We are running and ready to go. So on this episode of Forge and Anvil, we will discuss how suicide rates reached an all-time high in the U.S. per the CDC data. Next, the state of Massachusetts bans a couple from fostering children because of their conservative Catholic beliefs on marriage and gender. Finally, we've got to talk about DeSantis calling out Trump for refusing to sign the RNC's loyalty pledge. All this and more, so stick around. My name is Connor. I am the host of this podcast, and I am joined tonight by a couple of first-time guests, the first of which is the president of Ain't Blackistan, Adam Coleman. So, Adam, please tell the audience who you are, uh, what the heck is Ain't Blackistan, and uh, what is it <laughs> that you do for a living? Uh, Ain't Blackistan is a little bit of a long story, but basically it's a playoff of Joe Biden's, uh, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Um, but as far as for myself, I'm the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. Um, I'm an op-ed writer for multiple publications, uh, most notably New York Post, um, Newsweek, uh, all over the place. Uh, the list is long. Uh, I've been very fortunate. Um, and I have a podcast as well. Um, it's called Speaking Wrong at the Right Time, uh, where it's turning into more of a video series as well, where I sit down with people over a meal uh, called Breaking Bread. And um, yeah, just entering a whole bunch of projects, public speaking, the list goes on. Awesome. Well, welcome. Glad to have you. We'll have to ask you more about the GDP of Ain't, Ain't Blackistan and uh, <laughs> all the other uh, great questions and get an update on your entire country as a whole. But uh, we're also joined uh, again by another first time guest, someone that I listen to almost daily, uh, Todd Erzin. So Todd, same question for you. I'm the daily uh, contributor on the Steve Day Show, where I've been for, well, it's going on a decade now, and I'm a co-author of uh, Fauci and Bargain which, with Steve Dace, which came out in uh, 2021 about the farce that is Anthony Fauci and uh, COVID in general. And uh, other than that, I'm just a uh, Catholic father of uh, four daughters. Awesome. Welcome on. And as always, I'm joined by my regular co-host, Michael Aper. Hey, friends. As always, I'm a God-fearing student of Scripture, and I'd like to see the righteousness of God restored by the people of God. Let's get this going. All righty. And if you are watching this on Twitter, feel free to jump over to Rumble or YouTube if you want to send in chats, or you can stay on Twitter. Up to you on that front. But if you're listening on one of our podcast devices to the replay, feel free to join us sometime for Monday night. We go live at 8 p.m. Central every Monday night, and we take your chats on air, and uh, we'll be monitoring those as we go. But let's jump into our first story. So this is from Fox News. Suicide rates reach all-time high in the U.S. per CDC data. Suicide rates have reached an all-time high in the U.S., according to new data posted on Friday from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. 
Approximately 49,500 people died by suicide in 2022, a 2.6% increase over the prior year and the highest number on record. Suicides have risen steadily in the country over the past two decades, per the National Center for Health Statistics. In 2000, some 29,350 people took their own lives. A decade later, later that number had risen to 38,364 and it reached 48,344 in 2018. There was a short-lived decline of suicides in 2020 when they dipped to 45,979 during the first year of the pandemic, but they began rising again in 2021. We've seen these increases for many, many years, CDC Chief Medical Officer Dr. Deborah Hourly told Mark Sagal, Fox News medical contributor, during a radio interview on Thursday, August 10th. There was a slight decline in 2019 and 2020, but over the past 15 years, we've been on this trajectory. Many experts, including Dr. Rahan Aziz, a psychiatrist at Jersey Shore University Medical Center in Neptune, New Jersey, believe that the pandemic played a role in the suicide spike post-2020. During the pandemic, social isolation increased and access to mental health services decreased, he told Fox News Digital. The COVID virus itself is also associated with high rates of depression, anxiety, and brain fog, he went on. All of these factors could have contributed to higher rates of completed suicide in the post-pandemic era. Numerous factors may be driving up the suicide rate, experts say, including depression and scarcity of mental health providers, as reported by the Associate Press. So we'll leave it there for now. But my initial thoughts uh, on this article, unfortunately, I was not surprised. I think we live in an ever-increasing dark culture, and sadly, this is something that we are seeing become a common trend, that uh, suicide rates are up, depression is up, and I think the lockdowns and uh, all of the COVID fiasco really did a number on individuals' mental health. I think what it really did was expose a lot of issues that were probably already there in our system and just exacerbated the issue, and we're beginning to see the fruit of that play out. It's incredibly unfortunate, and uh, we're going to have to talk a lot about this. And this could be its own podcast. We could really do a deep dive here. We won't be able to tackle all the angles on this story tonight. But, um, Adam, I'll turn it over to you first to get your initial reaction to the article. Doesn't surprise me at all. Um, you know, I during the pandemic, I was thinking about uh, prison. You know, what do they do to you in prison when you cause a lot of trouble? Your punishment is isolation, right? And what do they determine? The isolation is actually torture. It's torture to the human being. Uh, we're social creatures. And when you create a society that is scared to either go outside or you punish them uh, by making them isolate uh, away from everybody else, you make a, a sicker world. And that's what, we, what we're seeing. And I, I think, um, I mean, I don't know the statistics, but I would imagine Suicide rates for adolescents probably increase as well, um, especially with them not being able to go to school for an extended period of time. Um, you know, not to say too much, but my, you know, my son was having issues as well with his mental health. Um, you know, so it's just, it, it really doesn't surprise me, but it's, it's very sad that no one considered this as a possibility. Everybody was just looking at the now. It didn't care about the, you know, the possible ramifications of just uh, the emotional, we need to do something right now. Mm -hmm. And no one wanted to pump the brakes. No one wanted to consider um, 
any possible negative uh, outcomes coming from it. Yeah, I agree. And of course, Todd, you've been very vocal on uh, COVID and lockdowns and just the effect that it's had on our society. So I'd love to get your reaction as well as feel free to respond to anything Adam just said there. Well, isolation is a key term, but they didn't necessarily isolate us. This happened because of how isolated we already were. Uh, we are so individualistic, living in our own bubbles, uh, that we were primed for this. Whether we're uh, certainly whether we're when we're outside of the church, but even inside of the church. Let's face it. I know there are a lot of uh, great churches out there that ended up drawing a line in the sand. But for the most part, if you looked around you, the churches were behaving just like everybody else. Just get in line. Do as you're told. Drink the Kool-Aid. It, it was really appalling. The, the Holy Spirit has been nowhere on this. Listen, our hope is ultimately, we don't believe in cheap grace. Hope is supposed to be able to overcome this. Uh, a virus with a 99 point whatever survival rate. And we were like, you know, running for the hills like it was the day of the dead. We were already isolated in, in mind, body, and soul. We, we, we really found out that we really as a people believe in nothing other than fear, comfort, just the id. Our buttons are so easily pushed. And that's why... Listen, I, I, I believe on some level COVID was a purposeful manipulation of us. But even if it was purely accidental, we were a people in this time that was ripe to be picked off because of how we live our lives normally. We, we are utterly, you know, whether it's our phones or how sedentary we've become, how unhealthy we've become in so many different ways, this this. We, we, we we're not meant as a people to be so individualistic. This, this, which doesn't mean individualism in and of itself is a terrible thing. It's done a lot of wonderful things uh, for this nation. But now we become gods unto ourselves. And when, that ultimately is outside of God is destined to lead to that isolation, that loneliness, that despair that leads to offing oneself. It was inevitable. There's a distinction that comes to mind for me in how people responded to COVID. Because, you know, around, let's say, February, March, April, May of 2020, most of us were reasonably concerned because we didn't know what was going on. You know, there is a, a healthy dose of, yeah, we should probably distance, maybe stay in from going to big public events or whatever and there was a reasonable immediacy to the response but it, what is most telling i think is after that what you're saying todd of whether people stood for something they believed in once the data was coming out on the mortality rates or on who it was that was being infected or even longer after than that the efficacy of the vaccinations there are people who still to this day live in fear and where, you know, they wear their masks, they don't go into social settings because they've become so trained in that. And it reminds me of a, 
I think a paradigm that I've discussed before on this podcast, and that is the difference in thought of how liberals versus conservatives would approach any given situation. A conservative approach most often looks at the long-term game and thinks, how can this be benefiting us in generations to come in long-term solutions? And a, a more liberal mindset tends to be an immediate emotional response of this is the problem right now. So at a certain point during COVID lockdowns, I think there are more and more people saying, our kids aren't going to school. They're not socializing properly. They're having unhealthy relationships with people through digital mediums. And this shouldn't continue the way that it is. And then the more immediate response was people are still dying. And if you go out, you're going to kill your grandma. Well, now on the other side of it, we can kind of do an autopsy and say, what the heck? Why did so overwhelming of a majority of the population conform to prolonged masking, prolonged uh, work from home situations, schooling from home situations? And now we're seeing the the result of that is the suicide rates going higher and higher and higher. And the article that we're discussing focuses on COVID as a reason for that. But what's fascinating in the midst of that article, it blames scarcity of mental health providers, which is really baffling to me because I feel as if in my career and in my experience, there is a surplus of mental health providers more so than I've ever known of in any other generation. So I want to know, what do you guys think of that? Do we have, do we need more mental health providers or do we need fewer mental health issues? <laughs> um, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's regional. Maybe there are certain areas of the country that there aren't as many therapists. It's possible. You know, I live in New Jersey, so um, you know, I'm more skewed. It's very populated here. You can always find something. Um, but maybe there's parts of the country that don't have it. Um, just like any other resource, there's probably some area that's that has uh, some sort of scarcity to it. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's really the really the thing. That article just sounds like it's just covering all its bases. Yeah, you know? it did. It gave me that same impression. Something yeah. that Todd said earlier, he was talking about the overemphasis on individualism. I would say that uh, there's a lot of individuals who are probably probably um, they they've been to counseling maybe too many times. You know, <laughs> there's a, there's there's almost an overemphasis on mental health because of that individualism. Everyone kind of wants to. Um, sometimes it's playing a victim. Sometimes it's honestly just individuals need to learn how to take the conflicts that life throws at you and just learn how to live with them and learn how to adapt to them. And there is an overemphasis in especially the millennial and Gen Z generation of, of being really okay with going to counseling. And that's, that's been a net positive in some ways, because you could argue that past generations, um, you know, refuse to seek help to a fault. But now I think a lot of our generation and younger is starting to really, uh, 
take counseling so seriously that everyone has an issue that everyone has trauma about every little thing. And it really boils down to that overemphasis on individualism. It's like everyone wants to be unique with their, with their three or four or five, you know, pet, uh, ailments that they, they carry around. I mean, at least that's, that's just the way I see it. Um, obviously there's, there's room for debate on that front, but that's just, that's where my mind goes. Maybe I'm off on that. (laughs) Well, victimization has become an entire worldview. I mean, look, you have D1 athletes now with being told that they they have been uh, victims uh, of the, the system for generations. Listen, I happen to have a D1 athlete. She's spoiled rotten at school, and she doesn't get a penny from uh, name, image, and likeness or anything like that. But we've conditioned people that you're you're not authentically living yourself if you believe and there's listen people are that, that really victimized in this world by terrible things we really don't need people who are told you get to have a a scholarship and go to college that you are fundamentally um you know shackled in your life that that's just absolute nonsense and then when it comes to covid you know this this is an, the 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 victimization mindset is that you know we Boy, we really got away with this thing. Uh, we got lucky. Thank God that vaccine came in time. I, I don't know. You, you guys go to church, the people you talk to, do, do do they really believe that we were on death's door? Do they still believe that that vaccine uh, saved all of us? And this ties directly into this level of despair because the devil is ultimately the father of what? He's the, He's the father of lies. And if we're still as a culture believing that we just narrowly escaped if we're preaching that uh and people and yet people are still uh killing themselves at the rate this data shows it so it's it seems like the saving grace of the magical vaccine and you've heard me talk about that on the show isn't white isn't quite connecting i think people realize through all of this, that uh, see, our faith teaches us that the better angels of our natures can rise above this and all things, and the worst of us instead came out in this thing. And it it's intuitive in people, even the worst people, the the people right now that you, you are trying to tear down the church. On some level, they're acting out because they understand this is this is garbage. This is nonsense. None of this connects we we should have been able to come together listen why does the church the church for the most part look exactly like the world when it came to covid Hmm. there's guys there's zero good answers to that yeah what did we really all now there's maybe hopefully you guys i mean maybe you guys ended up at a church that was the answer to that uh, uh that darkness but listen again speaking as a catholic for the most part, the Catholic Church just said, just do what you're told. Let's get through this. That's not a light in the darkness. Hmm. That's not. Well, that, that, that's that's goats. Yeah. What's interesting to me is I, I really feel like a lot of this is a uh, is a fault of just an under-catechized 
population within our churches. And it's funny because, yeah, you're, you're Catholic, Todd. Michael and I are, are Protestant. So I'm sure we have our theological disagreements. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think right now we've got bigger fish to fry, um, you know, and we can we can always have a, a fun conversation about those differences later. But something that the Catholic Church historically has been much better on than Protestant churches is catechizing. And when you know your catechism properly and you have basic answers to some of life's hardest questions i mean you you know what the meaning of life is you know you you can literally answer that in in two sentences when you're properly catechized and so many people don't actually have proper meaning in their life that the fear of death was just so crippling and that included people in the church and i think as a result we see these people within the church that were so fearful and ultimately i think so many pastors did not want to speak out on um, being more bold during the lockdowns, especially because like Michael said, you know, there's, there was, there's definitely, I think everyone gets a grace period in the early stages of not knowing what it was. But once the data started coming in, I think there was too many churches that were still shuttered because too many of the congregants were so fearful that many of the pastors listened to the congregants and, and kept their doors shut. And of course, I'm sure there's pastors individually that were very terrified as well, but I can say, I went to a church that kind of played somewhere in the middle. They started reopening when they could bit by bit. I'm no longer at that church. Um, that's in a whole other state. That's a whole uh, thing in itself, but either way, um, you know, ultimately I think that the fear drove people in the pulpit and in the congregation to ultimately shut their doors when there was no longer a reason to. And so many individuals, as we see, were clearly needing help in this time frame, as we see uh, depression start to rise. And I mean, it, it, it said that in 2020, there was a, be- a brief dip in the suicide rate. But it did show that starting at the beginning of the pandemic is when we started seeing the rates of substance abuse and domestic abuse start to go up. So it might have taken a moment for some of the, uh, the cows to come home. But ultimately, we're just seeing the fruit of what I would really say was brought on by the lockdowns. But again, I think it, there was issues in our society. Like Adam mentioned, the isolation. I think people are isolated long before lockdowns. Lockdowns just made it worse. We live in our own bubbles on social media and we've lost a lot of that human connection and we've lost a lot of that spiritual connection. And I think that's really driving people mad. Well, it's like we started this conversation, exactly what you're saying. I don't think that the the mental health crisis has really anything to do with COVID itself. COVID just turned up the heat and the isolation that Adam was talking about is very present. I think the, you know, like he was talking about punishment in prison. There was a lot of people who felt imprisoned in their homes when they were living in fear of going out of their homes and students that were experiencing school like this through a screen and that's not the social interactions that any young person needs to thrive. So it's going to breed um, antisocial behavior. And ultimately, the suicide thing, you know, I think it's important to identify where the issue lies and how it applies to our larger culture. You know, usually suicide comes up in the context of the whole trans conversation. And if you oppress trans kids and don't affirm them, then they're just going to go kill themselves. That's kind of the narrative that's being put out there. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a fundamental issue there, obviously, and we would all recognize that, that they're saying suicide in trans 
children or trans adolescents, teenage, whatever, any sort of uh, person struggling with sexual dysphoria, I think the what the narrative says is that if you don't, if you're not nice to them and affirming of them, that's going to cause their suicide. But I think we would maybe argue that their issue with mental health stability and their image issue of how they identify themselves, where they find value, where they find purpose, they overemphasize the individualism that Todd is talking about in this culture where we need to define ourselves, make our own self, our own God, really. I think it's a form of idolatry. And when we engage in constant idolatry, it will demand sacrifices. And to an extent, I think it'd be good to recognize that a lot of the mental health issues that are in place here have to do with the stability of people's spirituality and how they relate to others through their spirituality, how they relate to themselves, and how they prioritize their image of themselves. And those of us who are found in Christ identify ourselves in the image of Christ, who is self-sacrificing, who is loving and gracious, and able to endure great hardship as well. Amen. We're doing a great disservice to people if we keep telling them that their pain is unique and special. That that's a prison. If 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 you're if, if whatever's hurting you is something that no one else can possibly understand, no wonder you feel you can't escape it. No, my pain has been experienced by thousands of others before. Perhaps the three brothers right before me right now. And that's that's where we can get out of it. It's been done before. Somebody broke these chains before. And, and of course, so there's the fellowship uh, amongst mere mortals like us. And then there's the fellowship we have with the Savior, as you just mentioned. But it it is an utter disaster if we start lying to ourselves and saying that whatever our unique pain is, nobody else can understand. My pain is what makes me special. Your pain doesn't make you remotely special. And that's what we need to escape out of. And that's what so many kids these days fall into. They get their identity through victimization. You can't go anywhere. Honestly, it is a straight path to suicide if that's what you ultimately believe sooner or later. Yeah, it's a hard pill to swallow. And I know Connor and I were raised in a generation where largely speaking, the educators and influencers in our life growing up and we we were told that you are special that you are unique and mm -hmm. nobody can feel your feelings except for you and everything about you is unique and special and you're a winner and everyone gets a trophy <laughs> and now those people are raising children with that same understanding and we're seeing the the negative the negative results of that yeah yeah, Adam, I wanted to I wanted to turn it to you for the, the last word on this story, because uh, you've talked a lot about victimhood. You've talked a lot about the culture of victimhood. Um, so how do you think that ties in? Because obviously there's a, a genuine problem here with these suicide rates being high. But we've also outlined a lot of other problems of everyone maybe overemphasizing their own problems to a point where there's an over um, <clears throat> they're giving too much attention to their problems, which may be driving some of these mental health um, ideas, um, but you talked a lot about victimhood. So I'd love to kind of hear more of your thoughts on that area. Yeah. Um, well, I think one thing I want to kind of bring up is that um, I talk about my mental health issues uh, publicly because I think often, like Todd was saying, we all think that no one else is going through it. 
or no one else has experienced it. So I think talking about it openly and publicly can encourage people to seek help or at least uh, understand they're not alone in this fight. And so if someone is able to overcome it, who's going through the same obstacle, then it's likely for them to be able to overcome it as well. Um, so I think that that's a very important message that needs to happen. Um, in regards to victimhood, I treat it much of the same way. I talk about me experiencing victimhood, uh, going through depression. When you when you have um, when you have deep depression, you victimize yourself, um, and you you stay within this mentality that's overtly negative. And overcoming that obstacle is something that um, I'm very proud of and something that I want to talk about because now I see it within a whole bunch of different people. And some people go in and out of victimhood. Some people stay within victimhood. But ultimately, victimhood produces nothing of greatness. Uh, it is something that only holds you down. And uh, part of our issue right now is that our environment is rewarding victimhood. It's giving, it's it's having people discover victimhood even when they're not victims of anything, right? They're just manufacturing their own oppression, um, and it's kind of like you know stabbing yourself and celebrating how many wounds you have. Mm. Um, so it's, I think the the victimhood narrative you can quite literally see it in everything. Uh, you know, in my book, I talk about it somewhat from a racial standpoint, but you can swap race out with just about anything. It's the same mentality. It's the same struggle, um, but it's also the same thing that people uh, of all walks of life can overcome. Yeah, well said. Well said. I wanted to jump into the chat real quick before we move on to our next story. Uh, I saw on on Rumble, uh, Hidden Angel said that he needs to move to a smaller town. Definitely do that. It's it's <laughs> it's well worth it. <laughs> Get out of the cities. And Michaela on YouTube said, Satan already tells people they are alone in their suffering. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ is the one that suffered for us and now walks with us through our hardships. Hidden Angels also said earlier in the chat on Rumble that uh, <laughs> their church is still thinking that COVID's the end of the world and oh. that they live in a, a college town in North Carolina. And that might have to do with it, why that it, could be. Probably very well does. If I may. Yeah. I love what Adam just uh, said. I mean, it, and it, you know, he's standing on the shoulders of giants there, you know, with uh, whether it's uh, Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington. Again, I mean, these guys really had people who wanted them not to succeed and may well not have even wanted them to live. Mm -hmm. They were real victims of really bad things, but they had the same answer that Adam just gave about like, I, I can't let myself just be the victim. And they did. They conquered. We all know we can choose to teach our children white or black about them if we want to, or we can continue to teach them nonsense about whatever the victim is, white or black. See, I, I just think Adam just nailed it on the head. Just have, just as many generations before us going back and back and back. We always have a choice of what we want our narrative to be. Exactly. Amen. Amen. It's interesting, and Adam, I've heard you talk about this before on another podcast, is it's not limited to a liberal victimhood, but no. that there's conservative victimhood as Absolutely. well. And that oh, yeah. it's very yes. much a universal experience that it's almost like comfort food. Yes. Comfort food makes you fat <laughs> and unhealthy, right? Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, do you do you want an example? Yes, please. So, um, a conservative victimhood narrative. Oh, I say conservative slash Republican, however you want to see it. Yeah. Um, well, and this is not to say whether it's right or wrong, but I'm just saying how it's how it comes through and how I hear it. It is um, Trump lost the election. Okay. So then the, the next remark is, well, it was it was stolen from him. And then I hear, well, what's the point anyways? Mm. Right? Black pill. So yeah, it, it's it's overtly negative. It's like, look what they're doing to us. They're, they're taking from us. They're stealing from us. And I, I'm thinking to myself, well, so you're meaning to tell me there's nothing that Trump could have done that would have been better, that would increase his odds of winning. There's nothing that, that could have possibly done. There's no other possibility for him to win, right? And so the victim mindset says um, there is nothing that could have been done. Losing was always going to happen. It's someone else's fault, right? And I'm trying to say, not as someone who hates Trump, but as someone who says everyone should take accountability for their actions, whether they win or lose. And so when I say, okay, let's say if certain ballot things happen in certain places, but you're telling me there's zero that Trump could have done, right. right? And an honest person would be like, well, he could have done this better. He could have done that better, right? They would examine it. But a person who stays within that victim mindset will say there is zero that could have been done. Yeah. Or, or if I point out something that said that part doesn't even matter because the stolen votes are, you know, so they will always hone in on the negative. Yeah. And, and I, I think the, the remedy for victimhood is accountability. It's being responsible for your outcomes. The problem that I see, whether in politics, really, is avoiding that, just outwardly avoiding that. And if you try to hold anyone accountable, then you are chastised for it, or you are only saying that because you're part of this, and right? And, and I think that that's a really, really big problem, because if you care about someone, if you care about something, you will criticize it, hmm. right? If yeah. you see your, your child messing up, you, you wouldn't say, well, you know, yeah, it's okay. No, you say, hey, you're messing up. Here's where you're messing up. Here's how you can fix it so you can do better. But what we're telling people is that in politics, uh, the person that you like is perfect. And there's nothing that they can do. Mm. And, and if that perfect person doesn't reach that outcome that you believe that they should reach, it's because someone did that to them. Someone took it mm -hmm. away from them, mm -hmm. right? And it's it's uh, poisonous, it's unhealthy, and it, it results in the status quo. So I, I fear that we're going to see the, well, we might talk about this later, but <laughs> I fear we might see the same patterns happen again and again in the next couple of years. So. Oh, you will. Oh, you will. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, we'll definitely talk more about that as we go on through the night because I've got some stories that will probably bring us right back home to that. But either way, you do have agency, and I thought that was brilliant, Adam. So yeah. I really appreciate uh, what you said there. But let's move on to our next story. So this is actually from TimCast.com. Massachusetts bans couple from fostering children because of conservative Catholic beliefs on marriage and gender. Mike and Kitty Burke filed a lawsuit against the state on August 8th for denying them the ability to foster due to their religious views. Mike and Kitty Burke are a Catholic couple from Massachusetts who have long wanted to become parents. Beckett Law, who is representing the Burks, said in a press release about the case. 
Mike is an Iraq war veteran. Katie is a former paraprofessional for special needs children, and together they run a small business and perform music for mass. Unfortunately, the Burks learned only on in early on in their marriage that they would not be able to have children of their own. Mike and Kitty began exploring becoming foster parents through the state's foster care program with the hope of caring for and eventually adopting children in need of a stable, loving home like theirs. There is currently a shortage of foster families in the state and over 1,500 children without foster families. The law firm noted, quote, the crisis has become so extreme that the state has resorted to housing children in hospitals for weeks on end, not because the children need medical attention, but because the Commonwealth has nowhere else to put them. Now more than ever, Massachusetts needs loving couples like the Burks to foster children in need, end quote. The couple completed hours of training in 2022 and underwent extensive interviews and a home study to qualify for the foster program. Quote, throughout this process, Mike and Kitty emphasized their willingness to foster children from diverse backgrounds and with special needs, Beckett Law said. They expressed their openness to fostering sibling groups as well so that children in need could maintain their critical family ties. In all respects, the Burks were, on, were an ideal foster family, end quote. During the home interviews, Burks noticed that many of the questions they were being asked focused on their Catholic views regarding sexual orientation, marriage, and gender dysphoria. The couple insisted that they would love and accept any child, no matter their sexual orientation or struggles with gender identity. However, because Mike and Kitty said they would continue to hold their religious beliefs about gender and human sexuality, Massachusetts denied them a license to foster any child because, as the reviewer put it, their faith is not supportive and neither are they, Beckett Law explained. Federal law protects the ability of religious people and organizations to foster children in need without having to forfeit their beliefs. Because Massachusetts was unwilling to uphold law, including it in its own foster parent bill of rights, Beckett is going to court to enforce them, the law firm said. The 132-page complaint requests that the court declare that the 1st and 14th Amendments to the United States Constitution require defendants to cease discriminating against the plaintiffs and those who share plaintiffs' religious beliefs on the basis of their religious beliefs, exercise, and expression. They are also seeking attorney fees and nominal and compensate compensatory damages there we go i got there well this article was unfortunate to read um but i think it's important because unfortunately we are beginning to see ideological lines being drawn um and oftentimes it is done on a state-by-state county-by-county basis and this is an example of a blue state kind of running amok of uh overbearing government and infringing upon um, religious beliefs and uh, discriminate against individuals who have um, specifically more conservative leaning beliefs, whether you believe that theologically or uh, politically. Uh, either way, unfortunately, it's not surprising. It's something that seems to be a rising trend. Um, but uh, either way, I, I'll go ahead and turn it to first, first to you, Adam, to get your initial reaction to the article. Um, shocked. Hmm. You know, um, it's it's kind of funny because much of my family is actually from Massachusetts, and I know of one particular relative who's been a foster parent for, I think, decades now. Um, so, I mean, I'm loosely familiar with the foster care system, and um, I've been blessed to talk to people who grew up in the foster care system who are now adults, and to kind of gain a, another perspective. And, and the idea that 
<laughs> the idea that they're being that discriminatory, not because like they have some sort of criminal history or uh, some sort of sketchy report, but because down to their personal beliefs, um, I think that is kind of shocking, especially uh, they have to send children into hospitals because they don't even know what to do with them. Uh, yeah. it's, it's an absolutely sad state of affairs. And to deny some child or multiple children access to a home that is stable um, simply because they don't want to say that there's 85 genders <laughs> is, is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, that was something that I, I didn't get to say in my initial reaction as well. Just the hospital thing is really makes my blood boil. Just that, yeah. that fake, virtuous, uh, phony empathy that the uh, that the politicians that represent that state um, try to have. Yet at the end of the day, they're putting kids in uh, hospitals. Um, There's something to be said about <laughs> vetting and making sure the kids are going into safe For homes because sure. there's been right. a long history of foster homes being extremely toxic and dangerous environments for kids. And I'm sure that's an argument that they would build off of to say that, oh, well, we we know when the state's in control of them, then they're not in those sort of homes. But mm -hmm. when they're passing up families like this family who is capable, willing, and even has expertise in the ability to care for these children. That's, that's just beyond me because they, they don't just have what we might think of as virtue on their side, but they also have credentials. You know, the, the wife is a special educator uh, and worked as a paraprofessional in special education. The father is, or father to be anyway, being a veteran has endured great hardship and, more than likely might be able to equip a child with the abilities to endure hardship as well. Yeah. So you would hope that they are qualified both professionally and virtuously. Yeah. Well, Todd, what, what was your initial reaction? Well, as with the previous issue, and this is what Christian Orthodox Christians need to get better at. We need to get to first things. This is fundamentally an issue of godlessness and Christians who continue to pull their punches and accept the arguments of people that want, that ultimately their arguments are God killers. I mean, out east in major eastern cities right now, they are actually telling you, they're telling families to open up their actual homes to illegal immigrants. <laughs> That are when we, not because they have no place else to go, but because we're purposefully. Uh, uh, flooding our nation by keeping our uh, border wide open. But your average Catholic family can't have a, mm -hmm. an actual desperate child into their home. I mean, this is insane. And I, before what I do now, I used to be a reporter at the Des Moines Register. So going back around the time of Obergefell, Obergefell 2008, I want to say, or something like that, uh, we, we had all the reporters gather in a room and one of the, uh, directors of the local gay straight alliance kind of thing came in and talked about it was in massachusetts at the time the the catholic charities organization had to make a decision either it adopts to gay couples or it gets out and to its credit at the time it got out 
And I asked the people who came in, and they said that was the only decision that could possibly be made. And where everybody's acting like this is really a difficult thing to parse. And I said, and I asked them. I now, I I didn't ask them as a Catholic. I asked them what is quite frankly an objective question. If if this is what you are forcing upon adoption agencies, it gives the impression that this is actually more about you and your interests than the children's actual interests. To which the person responded, well, I guess we know what your side you're on. See, they, don't, they weren't even going to argue it on the merits back in 2008. Mm. And I, she had no idea that I was, in fact, a Catholic. I thought this, this was morally repugnant. But just on her terms, I want her to stand up for this and say, you know how many fewer children are going to be adopted if this is the line you draw on the sand? And she wouldn't even, she needed to make me the scapegoat, me the enemy. Well, now it's 2023 and the script is totally reversed. And here we are with this ridiculous nonsense where... It's, it's not about will we adopt to gay couples. We won't even adopt to straight couples, which were the norm up until five seconds ago. So, again, the, the church has been indistinguishable in many respects on COVID. Here, how, has the church really stood up and said, there are fathers, there are mothers, these are vital. Now, we... I think the four of us have heard those arguments plenty, but they clearly have not won the day. Mm. And we have to ask ourselves why. And a lot of it is because we keep getting lost in minutia. And we have to ultimately realize that on all these fronts, we're ultimately dealing with people. Fundamentally, their aspirations go all the way to God. They want him dead out completely. And if we don't realize that, our arguments will never be sufficient to the task. We have to we have to start there. As we, if you watch the Steve Day show, let the lion out of its cage, okay? <laughs> uh, be the vehicle for the good, the true, and the beautiful as believers. Don't think yourself too smart by half. Don't think yourself as you're the only person that can solve this Rubik's Cube. That's not true. God solved it all a long time ago. Let's get on board those coattails for once. Because whenever we try to do it our way... We keep losing with re- look at this, guys. I don't know. I can't. I don't know exactly how old you are, but listen. The, the thought of this being what a podcast would be about—that we'd be talking about this as Christians—we wouldn't even have wrapped our brain around this yeah. not very long ago. Yep. But here we are. We, we we've let this happen in many respects because of how bad our arguments are, and we never get to the first things. Yeah, yeah, and that's the point of podcasts like this is unfortunately we have to have these podcasts <laughs> because if, if we don't start hammering out these uncomfortable conversations then we are unfortunately going to be unprepared to actually make the arguments that can actually make a difference in these sorry situations i i know that's something that michael and i both feel passionately about but yeah it's wild that we even have to have this conversation I know you're going to get to it sooner or later, but the answer to some of this is going to come up in the fourth topic when we get to uh, what's what's his name, uh, Oliver Anthony, or there. We'll have the answer to a lot of our questions on a lot of fronts when we get to that topic. Absolutely, yeah. Well, 
if anyone has any final thoughts, feel free to throw them out now. If not, we'll move on. No. All right. <laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and move on. This is from the Daily Wire. So we'll get spicy for a bit here. We'll, we'll kind of uh, jump off course and then jump back in with our last story here. But this is from the Daily Wire. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis slammed former President Donald Trump for refusing to sign the Republican Party's Beat Biden pledge in which candidates state that they will support whoever wins the, pri the party's presidential primary. DeSantis, who trails only Trump in the GOP primary race, with all the candidates polling in the low single digits, made the remarks while speaking to reporters in Iowa late this week after the former president said that he would not sign the pledge. So instead of reading his quote, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and play DeSantis and let him speak for himself here. Have you signed the pledge yet? I did. Yeah, look, at the end of the day. Oh, I got to get the volume up here. Take two. Have you signed the pledge yet? I did. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, um, you know, you, you're going to go and participate and then say you might not support somebody else against Biden. I mean, you can, on the one hand, say that the country is going in such a bad direction, which we all believe. And then on the other hand, say you're just going to take your ball and go home. Really? Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do that. There we have it. Well, uh, there's a lot of people that have been throwing out their opinions on this matter, and and uh, I'm sure we'll get to that uh, in terms of our individual preferences for candidates here. But what was interesting is when I first saw this story, I thought I was I was really upset. I thought, wow, it's ridiculous that Trump is not willing to sign this pledge, and I was very frustrated to feel like it was uh, it was one of those man uh, over the movement sort of uh, sort of moments here. Um, the only thing that I will say is uh, upon further reflection, I remembered that uh, there was this same type of agreement in 2015 and uh, many individuals who signed that pledge in 2015 did not go on to support Trump in uh, in the general election. So I can see where there's some resentment there with people like John Kasich and Chris Christie, who uh, really benefited a lot from the uh, the primary in 2015 and then moved on to completely um, go up against Trump as opposed to uh, supporting him. Uh, in addition to that, though, I think I think I also realized in that moment that I wouldn't want to sign that pledge either because on the off chance, although it's a snowball's chance in hell, that uh, someone like Asa Hutchinson uh, received the nomination, I realized in that moment that I could not in good faith sign that pledge either. So I realized it was a, a little bit less about uh, necessarily some of the, the, the better candidates in the race, um, some of the people that uh, maybe would be a, a person's second or third choice. Um, but uh, there are other individuals that I would never pledge to support. I mean, if, if Chris Christie won, no, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not even going to vote in the general. So that was my initial take. Um, now, I've been very uh, agnostic overall. Um, with this primary, I have not really thrown my support uh, behind any one candidate. I really see the arguments behind uh, several of these candidates, and uh, we can get into all of that. Um, Todd, you're probably the most decided, or at least uh, that's the impression that I, I've, I've got from you, the most decided out of the four of us um, on the primary. So I'd love to get your reaction to this first. Well, yeah, full disclosure, uh, Steve Dace just had... DeSantis on the show on Friday to endorse. I personally endorsed him weeks before that. Uh, but he, while he gave 
as good an answer uh, as one could expect. I generally am somewhere from I don't care about this question to I think it's really, really stupid, not just in this election, <laughs> but in all election cycles. Like, I just don't I don't we have a hundred things to talk about. I don't need juvenile pledges about, uh, you know, this is, it's late. It's lazy questions from journalists. It's lazy for politicians to demand it, uh, of one another. If I really would like Trump to take a pledge, I'd like him to pledge to never, uh, make us take, uh, uh, another, uh, vaccine that he rushes again, that he never listens to Anthony Fauci again. Those are the pledges. I, I just, this, I'm not, like I said, Ron DeSantis gave a fine answer, but it's one of zero consequence and merit to me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, what was your reaction? Well, Todd took part of my words because I thought about previous pledges and no one actually cares. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> yes. Like no one remembers if they signed the pledge, if they kept to the pledge, no one actually cares. Um, what, what was this guy's name? Was it Grover, Grover Norquist? Am I yeah. saying his name right? I, yeah. He's the first person I remember trying to get all these politicians to sign some stupid pledge that no one actually cared about. Um, <laughs> um, so, I mean, yes, like like Todd said, he gave a good answer. Um, you know, theoretically, if you're a Republican and whoever becomes the nominee, that Republican is supposed to be better than the opposition. So you should throw your support behind them. Um, I think that's a very basic thing. I don't think you need a pledge for that. Right. Um, but you know, even if you're, if you're a Republican or not, like you have the right to not vote at all. Like is, is your prerogative? Um, I don't know. I just think this is like one extra thing for people to talk about in an election cycle, um, that quite literally no one cares about, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the reporters can write about it for a day or two. Um, or maybe one of them says something spicy and oh, now we have something to run with for a couple of days. Um, but I really don't care either about a pledge. I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised that Trump doesn't want to sign a pledge. Like that, I'll say that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's not surprising at all. And that was my, <laughs> my takeaway when I read this was like, well, of course Trump wouldn't sign a pledge like that. That's, that's keeping with every bit of his character and not that that's a bad thing either. You know, Trump is, I think pretty explicitly defined as being self-identified as the winner. He, he wants to be a winner of everything he ever touches. You know, he's, he's got the Midas touch where he thinks that everything he touches is gold. So why would a guy make a contingency plan for his failure when he knows in his every being that he's going to win? Mm -hmm. To me, it seems like with yeah. the psyche of Donald Trump, for him to write on that and, and sign on would be to concede that he might lose, mm. which yeah. I don't see Donald Trump ever being willing to do. To the extent that all of politics has become some version of a really stupid pledge to something meaningless, and in many, <laughs> respects, in many respects it is, Donald Trump gained popularity. And listen, I didn't support him in 2016, he ended up being a far better president up until COVID than I thought. But, you know, he, he ended up gaining the following he did amongst a lot of people because of what you're talking about. He just, I'm not taking your 
damn pledge. This is nonsense. I'm not, and then he mm-hmm. got himself in trouble when he started taking the pledges. I pledged to Anthony Fauci. I pledged to make you get the vaccine 10 times. I pledged to like <laughs> that. Really? That, so you, you nailed it. When, when he's at his best, he's, he's saying, yeah, I'm going to just do my own thing and turn over apple carts. And there's a lot of people that were terrified by that and were hungry for that. And it exposed a lot of nonsense. And for that, I'm grateful. I just wish he, when we really, really needed that, he wouldn't have succumbed because then he started taking the worst pledges of all. Well, he's still, (laughs) even at that time, uh, you know, when the vaccine was being created or whatever, he's still telling himself, I'm going to beat this. I'm a winner. I'm going to save our country. I'm going to be the guy who's given all the glory. And... That, I think, goes to the fundamental problem with Trump is that he cannot always be the winner. And maybe a dose of humility can go into that as well. But that's not what people want. That's not why they voted for him was humility. You just tried to say Trump and humility in the same sentence. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I I think what's frustrating for me, someone watching the primary, is that I feel like the uh, undecided individuals that are going to vote in the primary are not really being courted by any of the candidates. Um, that's really frustrating to me. And that's a lot of the reasons why I remain undecided is I honestly see arguments for DeSantis. I see arguments for Trump. I even see arguments for Vivek, you know, and, and I feel like, uh, um, right now, uh, kind of what, uh, Adam said at the beginning, like you can't point out a flaw in one of these candidates right now because everyone just circles the wagons as opposed to wanting to address them. And that's frustrating because that, that goes for, um, DeSantis supporters, that goes for Trump supporters. Um, you know, right now I had a DeSantis uh, supporter uh, was celebrating, hoping that Donald Trump gets thrown into jail. And I replied to this individual. I said, you're not a conservative if you're celebrating this. Like, I don't know why you're supporting DeSantis, because I don't think DeSantis is for this. Mm-hmm. I don't think he gave the best answer when the original indictment came down. You know, that's one critique that I can give of DeSantis. But my goodness, seeing a supporter being like, oh, I'm going to pop champagne when Trump's in jail. It's like, I don't think you're conservative, which honestly makes me just feel like these are a lot of bots that are just meant to really, um, really stir up trouble and create more infighting within the party. And I don't want the party to be you know, a hive mind, but I, I want real arguments and right now, I don't feel like there's real arguments on either side of the aisle. I've got questions that I would ask DeSantis and ask of his supporters that I don't get answers to, and, and the same to Trump and his supporters. And that's the most frustrating thing for me to see in this primary so far. Yeah, um, I'll tell you the, what the, the most bizarre thing that I'm witnessing is um, I'm, <laughs> it's so strange to me. I'm watching people who have like um, long-term memory loss. That's, that's, that's what it feels like. Cause they're using the same exact arguments that the leftists that they hate would use to attack Ron DeSantis. It is, it is so bizarre to me. And they also have long-term memory loss because every goddamn person wanted to move to Florida. Just, I don't know, was it five minutes ago? And then all of a sudden, he's part of the World Economic Forum. He's a, a, you know, Republican shill, part of the deep state. And I'm just like, what the hell happened? Do you guys remember? Go back through your Twitter timeline a couple months. Everybody loved him. Oh, he's owning Disney. Oh, he's owning the Libs. Oh, look, great. I want to move to Florida. I'm trying to sell my house now. And then all of a sudden, 
He's the worst human being in the world. What could have possibly happened? If like, oh, Ron de Sanctimonious. Is that, <laughs> like, <laughs> it, that was like the call, you know, like the horn that just went off and everybody just, just went into a, a trance and they just completely forgot that they loved this guy two seconds ago and all of a sudden they hate him. And like you said, Connor, if they had, if they had arguments that were like, good rational arguments, because I don't think Ron DeSantis is perfect. But yeah. if they had good arguments, then that's something we could talk about for anybody. Trump, Santos, Vivek, there's good arguments that you could have about their policy positions or what they're going to do. Or even if you think that they're lying about what they're saying about X, Y, and Z. But they don't do that. They hit with like the most disingenuous, dishonest, left-wing attacks. They're mm -hmm. attacking Ron DeSantis from the left. And it's extremely bizarre to watch. Yeah. Um, and and that's <laughs> that's that's been the standout thing that I've worked I've witnessed this now. This has everything to do, in my estimation, with our first topic, the the suicide rate. It's as, mm. our arguments are becoming meaningless, desperate, mm. filled with despair. They're, they're, you're not going to come to the table and want to have interesting arguments. To do that, you need to have hope. It, even pre-Christian, the Socratic dialogue. It's you. You shouldn't. Ha if you have an idea that you feel passionately about, by definition, you should put it out in front of the public. You should argue it. There's hope in that. Iron sharpens iron. All that stuff. But we don't believe that anymore. We must marginalize. We have to do the opposite. We can't trust the other in front of us to help us flesh out our argument. We need to destroy the other so that no matter what we think about anything, it must rewrite by definition because I have it. That, that that leads to chaos. That's born out of desperation, not out of hope. So yeah. I think we're talking about the same thing, no matter what topic we're talking about. We don't believe fundamentally on the right or on the left in what Adam's uh, talking about. That that there, it through common grace, we can come to the best argument, or at least a better argument. We're we're mm -hmm. actually destroying each other by believing whatever version of nonsense we come up with. It's good right there in and of itself. Get out of my way. I'm going to fashion this idol no matter what you say or do. Again, that's despair. That's suicide, culturally or individually. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to get into more, since we've identified the problem, to get into more of the actual primary itself, like, I honestly think that Vivek is doing a lot of what I want to see Ron DeSantis do um, in terms of transparency around taking hard questions one of the okay, things hold that on I, a second did you see him rap at the iowa state fair <laughs> i did i have I concerns did. i did but you know i will i will actually say that was a net positive to me only because <laughs> someone dug up an old college video of him rapping to that song and used it as an attack so then he goes to iowa and raps that song i thought that was i thought that was him being a, a bit of a happy warrior and letting it roll off his back in that moment but it was definitely uh Point it was cringy, but I think I think he embraced the cringe in that. So I'll I'll point give him a taken. point for that one. But like one of the things that I think I'm struggling with DeSantis right now is it does not seem like he wants to take on opposition media with the exception of left wing opposition media. But if we're being honest, Ron DeSantis is gonna whoop on a <laughs> on someone from the mainstream media. Um that I mean that's just not really a challenge anymore uh for someone of his stature. Um but what I think I'm I'm bothered by is not seeing him engage with um, with some of the individuals that are supporting Trump that are 
fair-minded. Obviously, there are people that you can list off, and I'm not going to name names here, but there are individuals that obviously are just actually in the, the cult of personality of Trump. And those individuals I get not one to necessarily um, engage with. But there are a lot of large platformed individuals that have said that they have reached out to DeSantis. And I'll name some of these names just because they're very public about it. Charlie Kirk, um, Tim Poole, Candace Owens, just the three that came to my mind um, that have invited Ron DeSantis or people um, from his campaign onto their shows. And they all, all of those individuals have said they have not they have not been answered. And that's something that's concerning to me only because I, I don't believe that Ron DeSantis is establishment. I really don't, but I do get the concern that he is making a mistake that a lot of the establishment individuals have made, which is ignoring the individuals that were labeled deplorables. And I think that's a lot of his issue with, with gaining momentum because a lot of those individuals, if Trump was taken off the board, if these indictments make it to where he can't even show up on the ballot, for example, I think a lot of those individuals are going to go to Vivek because Vivek is showing up to those same individuals that I mentioned and answering those hard questions, including a lot of accu accusations that have been thrown out at him. To my knowledge, I have not seen any big accusation left unanswered by Vivek. Now, obviously, you could say whether or not you liked his answers or, um, or what, but I, I, it seems like every time there's a, a attack on him, He's on some podcast answering direct questions about that. He was on Candace's podcast answering questions from uh, DC Drano. It was it was like the hardest, basically Trump supporting questions for Vivek to answer, and he was there taking those questions. That's just something I'm not seeing from DeSantis. So Todd, since you're someone that is supporting DeSantis and you've endorsed him, I mean, do you see that too? Because I I feel like you're one of the honest supporters of DeSantis. A lot of the people that are just online influencers are cult of personality for DeSantis it, because it's on both sides of the aisle here. But I feel like I can't get an honest answer from an honest supporter of DeSantis for why is he not doing these media hits? Why is he not trying to reach those those voters that are in Trump's base that, to Adam's point, were supporting him five minutes ago? But because they feel he's now lined himself as this establishment, he's almost proving their point by not showing up and saying, okay, line up, give me all your questions. I'm going to answer them one by one Q and a style. You know what, why, why do we not see that from him? That's, it feels like most of his media hits are either with easy to Trump individuals or friendly or, or friendly, friendly to him. Yeah. So I, th I think that's a very fair question. My answer to you has nothing to do with any special, Knowledge or expertise, generally speaking, it has mostly to do with the fact that I live in Iowa. You're not wrong post-Iowa. But here's the thing. Vivek is different for several reasons. He's basically mini-Trump in many respects. He's largely courting much of the same audience. Secondly, none of, I don't know, maybe you guys did. Did any of you know who Vivek was two seconds ago? I, I didn't. And he was a multimillionaire mogul of something. But uh, uh, Ron DeSantis's name ID was much, much higher. That guy needed to go everywhere, talk to everybody just to get name ID, which is absolutely vital. That is now, fair. To cut in real quick, I will say that I actually was one of the few people that knew about Vivek for okay. probably going on two years. He did a All lot right. of stuff with the Daily Wire that I think wasn't super 
viral, um, but he was on my radar for at least close to two years. Okay. Ago. But now, I'm, I'm an anomaly. Most people don't have that. <laughs> now, Ron DeSantis, the, the, Ron DeSantis has to win Iowa. But if, if he does not win Iowa, and I'm supporting of him, if Donald Trump wins Iowa, Ron DeSantis for his political future should just say, you got me. I'm going back to Florida because I, I, I think what will have been established there by uh, Donald Trump, it's going to just get much harder in New Hampshire uh, without that uh, and uh, South Carolina uh, without that win. But in terms of winning Iowa, being on those shows you mentioned, Steve's been on. Steve's talked with Charlie Kirk and been on his show, been on Tim Pool's show. Who was the third one you mentioned? I'm sorry. Uh, Candace Owens was another one. Candace that Owens, okay. Mentioned I, I, that publicly. Respect. Uh, but here's what he did. Ron DeSantis does not need to be on those three shows to do well and win Iowa. Hmm. He, I think he, I think he will down the road at some point. But I, I want this is not a primary. Remember, this is a caucus. These people right. do not care what those three they and they may not even know who those people are. They're not. Mm. They, it's a much different thing. Ron DeSantis being at the Iowa State Fair, eating pork chops, being around the people, being with the, our governor here, much bigger deal. So you're not wrong. Mm. Your placement in this whole process, though, is is the key thing here. And De, Ron DeSantis, he's got to win Iowa, and there's a certain path to doing that for him. Mm. Yeah, because that was my suspicion. But I guess to your point earlier, is like that's where I'm thinking, okay, these individuals with these very large platforms, do they not have any sway in Iowa? You know, that's where where my mind's going is they don't. why aren't you going anywhere you can, you know? They don't. That and it doesn't mean that, that, that doesn't mean that the Iowa caucus voters look down on them. It's just a whole different animal. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Can, and if I could add, um, I hear what you're saying, Connor, as far as like, why is he going on these particular shows? I think also like when you're, when you're plugged in, everybody wants everything to happen at this moment. For sure. Right. <laughs> and, and like to what Todd's saying, I'm sure he has a particular plan and, and he's supposed to be at the fair. He's supposed to be doing certain things. Um, whereas for us, we're, you know, we're plugged in and we're watching and we see, him and we're just trying to find areas like well why why isn't this person doing this why is this person doing that um to the point vivek has to do these things vivek has to go everywhere right. because he, he has to build up his name recognition um i've 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 met vivek uh a few times uh and just for disclosure he's referenced my book within his his latest book um so we've we've built up a rapport and i think i think he's a good person he's freaking impressive uh to be honest with you just personally speaking all the things that he's accomplished and he's younger than i am um and so he's he's one of the most competent people that i've personally ever met he's just a little bit new when it comes to politics hmm. i see him unfortunately like wavering on certain things um evolving too much on certain positions um I don't see him challenging Trump, especially in the beginning. It was basically Vivek versus DeSantis, and right. he that was the only person that he was trying to challenge. I mean, I know it's a, it's a strategic move, but what it what ends up happening is, like what Todd says, he comes out seeing as Donald Trump light. Um, 
just wanting to do much of the same things that Donald Trump. And why would you want the imitation version when you can have the real thing? So, but I think that Vivek is capable of offering something different. Um, I just think that he's still figuring out what that is. Um, like, I, I know he has positions. I've, I've interviewed him. I know he has certain positions, but I think he needs his own brand. And I don't think that he's solidified that. You know, so yeah. when you're saying, I believe much of the um, America First movement, if someone comes to you and says America First, what does that remind you of? That'd be like Trump. So right. you can't <laughs> use America First. You have to come up with your own slogan. You have to come up with your own branding. Um, you know, these are, it, it might seem like nothing, but it, it's something like everybody does it. Everybody comes up with their own branding of what represents their policies. And he doesn't have that yet or if he has it i don't i don't hear him pushing it um so i i just think that you know he's being advised but by people and i'm sure some of the advice is good some of it's bad i think a lot of it though is because he's new to all this um but as far as the santos goes i i, I echo everything that todd said mm. yeah yeah that's fair and you know i i think i think Vivek has done a better job with messaging on certain issues that are important to me. I think that's a lot of where he he earns a bit of a soft spot. And again, I'm one of the few individuals that actually have known about him for longer than a couple months. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that makes me a little bit more willing to um, to trust, whereas so many other individuals like, who are you? Um, you know, but uh, but either way, I, I will say um, for full transparency, we have someone um, a pretty big name guest coming on in a couple of weeks who also is a part of uh, Vivek's campaign. So um, we'll definitely be um, doing our own vetting and asking some questions um, a couple of weeks from now. But uh, um, I, I think as a whole, his, his communication has been a little bit more crystal clear on things like what he's going to do to actually gut the deep state. I know DeSantis in um, at the, the family leadership summit, he was talking about uh, um, replacing the head of the DOJ and a couple of things like that. And, um, you know, I, I really think that I, my concern is that he's going to repeat a lot of the same mistakes as Trump's first term, maybe not necessarily 2020 mistakes, but a lot of the personnel mistakes. I think we need more than a head of the DOJ. I think there's a lot of gutting that needs to happen. And Vivek did tell Glenn Beck in that um, at that summit after he was done with Tucker, he gave specific uh, um, legal arguments for exactly how he was going to go about reducing some of these three-letter agencies. And to me, that's really important because ultimately, I really believe that the president can obviously influence and affect culture. But I also believe that we are starting to get some wins in the culture. We've talked, we've covered that a lot on this podcast, um, but that only just started. And I really feel like we need to win this next election so that we can have a country left over so that we actually have time to continue to get those wins. So, because it feels like the pendulum is just beginning to swing around, but if we don't, if we don't get some um, legislative change and some, some real um, leadership in our country, uh, whether it's perfect or a C plus, you know, I feel like we're not going to survive long enough to really um, harvest the, the, the fruit of our labor for these wins that we're just now starting to finally take in the culture, everything from pop culture with movies like nefarious uh, sound of freedom, Jesus culture, 
uh, or Jesus revolution, excuse me, not Jesus culture. No, not Jesus culture. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, so many of these great wins that we've seen on the actual um, cultural front, as well as just individuals are now, I, I think the average, in, the average person is now so against what the left is selling. Um, it just hasn't shown up necessarily in the political sphere yet that I think if it can show up, we can be given enough time to actually, for lack of a better term, be given four more years just to continue to hopefully build the momentum so that four years, um, you know, from the 2024 election, um, we might be able to dance into the white house. But that's, that's my thought here. <laughs> I know that was a lot, <laughs> but well, Anyways, about the the pendulum swinging, there's certainly some good pendulum swinging going on with Oliver Anthony. Absolutely, yeah. So Oliver Anthony, for those of you who don't know, Oliver Anthony, he was a, a backwoods uh, backwoods man writing songs for his own enjoyment and sharing them with uh, friends and family. And it seemed out of nowhere, he just blew up overnight. Um, so a lot of you have probably uh, already listened to his song. Uh, rich men north of richmond super great song i definitely recommend listening to it i'm not going to play it for fear of a copyright strike um but i will go ahead and uh bring up what uh, oliver anthony did next with his newfound fame I, mean, I think it was what thursday that he started blowing up so we're we're literally talking this guy has been blown up millions of listeners only for a matter of a, about a week and here he is this is from the post-millennial Oliver Anthony plays viral populist anthem Rich Men North of Richmond, reads Bible to massive North Carolina crowd. So this is one of those cultural wins that I was just talking about here. So I'm going to go ahead and just skip to the part where Oliver uh, really begins addressing the crowd here. If I can do it, you can do it. Before we start singing... And I mean we, because I hope y'all are going to be singing too. I just had something I, I felt compelled to share with you. This is in uh, Psalm, Psalm 37, 12 through 20. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. Better the little that have righteousness than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will have plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed and they will go up in smoke. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. More substance from uh, a backwoods guitar player who's now gone viral than uh, most of the pulpits across america unfortunately i thought that was amazing though just the fact that this man wrote a really raw authentic song that really caught on fire in a matter of days and the first thing he does with his platform is he pulls out scripture and he starts reading from what many pastors would be too scared to even 
bust open on a Sunday morning. I thought that was incredible. Todd, what's your initial reaction? Well, as I've been saying on all these examples, how, how different has the church looked on these topics? Have we pulled our punches? Have we tried to use the nicest saccharine language possible to just meet everybody in the middle? Well, we tried all those things and look where we are. How often have we busted out the imprecatory prayer, though? I mean, there's a recent, it, it went semi-viral. It might be older than I think it is, but I just saw it. But there's this study that people did in an elevator. Did any of you see this recently on Twitter? Mm, where it, it shows a, there's a camera on a full elevator. And everybody in the full elevator is in on the experiment except for one person. And this person gets on the elevator and everybody in the elevator is facing the wrong direction. Their backs are to the door, the opposite of what, you know, is normal. So she gets on and she just stands normally. And then the elevator starts going up and it keeps stopping at floors. Some people get off and then new people get on. They're in on it too. And they get in and they stand the opposite direction. And it just shows over time this impact this has on her. And slowly she's like a sunflower that's turning towards the sun and turn, except this time she's actually turning towards the darkness and she slowly starts to turn and face the other way because she's being shown a false gospel. And that's exactly what's happened with the church. They don't hear the real thing enough. And so they turn to faulty versions. And so when it comes to this, listen, there's a time and a place for imprecatory prayer. No doubt about that. But there's this fantastic speech. Look it up. I think it's a British colonel, uh, 19th century. I think his name's Charles Napier. But uh, he, he was stationed in India, in India, the British uh, during that time in India. But at the time, there was a tradition where if a man died, they would also they would then burn the widow at that time. And they would say that you need to let us to do this as part of our tradition. And there's this fantastic quote where he says, by all means, you guys do your traditions and we will do ours. Because when we find such a man, we erect gibbets and we hang them by their neck. <laughs> That's a version of imprecatory. Prayer. Like there's right and there's wrong. And I've heard your argument now and I find it to be utter nonsense. And here is my counter. And that's this. is I don't know anything. None of us knew anything about this guy named Oliver Anthony two seconds ago. But we're starving for this. Hmm. We're starving for people to say once again, there is right and there is wrong. There is light and there is dark. And right now we're living in a world where you're you, people of many, many degrees are telling us, if I don't believe a boy can become a girl, I'm the crazy person. All right, then he just said, over my dead body, enough. And here's God talking to you if you don't take my word. It's refreshing. It's beautiful. And yeah, it's a close fist, but it's not our close fist. It's a close fist of God. And he doesn't suffer fools like this. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. Mm. Well said. Adam, what was your initial reaction? Um, I mean, Todd said a lot. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to beat what he said. Um, you know, I was just thinking about the the song in general. Granted, I haven't uh, looked at the lyrics like to completely comb through it, but it, it just it makes me think about what I keep saying over and over. We keep talking about culture and culture, 
and while we are facing some cultural changes, I think what we're, what we're being fed is a culture war that is not really a culture war. I think we're, what we're actually dealing with is a class war uh, that's being distracted with a culture war yeah. or the illusion of a culture war. We're being manipulated into believing that half the country believes that a boy can become a girl and vice versa, when most people don't actually believe that. Yeah. I mean, that's why I tell people to go outside and touch grass. Do you talk to people? Do you have a job? Do you think the people at your job actually believe this? And maybe at very, very particular sectors of our society in very, very particular places, people are willing to lie to themselves and say false things, right? And then say it enough times and they believe it. But regular people, regular working class people, people who actually go out and work hard for their money, they don't believe any of this nonsense. Some of them never even heard this nonsense before. It's, it's the illusion that the people who are of the upper class who control the media, who are in these particular environments, they're the ones who have control over this message. They're the ones who have control over the false doctrine. And they're the ones who are making everybody else believe that what they're saying is actually true, that this is the new culture and that everyone believes it. Now get on the boat. When in reality, it is the most powerful people in our society is the people who go to these liberal arts schools, the Harvards, the Princetons, right? They're the masters of the universe. I remember Ben Shapiro talking about when he went to Harvard and they had this big sit down and said, you are the leaders of tomorrow. <laughs> and they weren't saying it like theoretically, no, you are the leaders of tomorrow. This is the mentality of these people who, who believe that whatever they're being told in these institutions is gospel and they are told to go out there and enforce it on everybody else. This is what we're actually dealing with. We're dealing with the upper class. We're dealing with the wealthiest who preach, um, don't get married. But guess what? They're all married, right? They preach all these things. They preach feminism, but they don't live like feminists. They, they preach all this stuff. Nuclear family is old antiquated. Guess what? They all grow up in two-parent homes. Like they, they preach all these things to poison the rest of us, hmm. to poison us all so we cannot compete for their resources. We cannot compete for their positions. That's yeah. all this is about. It's about power. And what I see is as someone who's lived in multiple states, who's lived in rural, urban, and suburban, and I've been around uh, people of all different demographics, immigrants, people naturally born here, they all want just about the same thing. They might have vary on some approaches to how to get there, but they don't believe this junk. This is, this is a very unique uh, circumstance that we've been dealing with in the past few years, especially they've taken off the mask and they showed who they really are now. So the drips and drabs of trying to infect society, they went full, full tilt on it. And their only reason we're talking about it now is because they've, they've overshowed their hand. Hmm. You know, they, they, they've, they show too much. Um, I use the analogy of when Facebook wanted to, change their design and they just changed it completely everybody rejected it because it was too much at once so yeah. they reverted back and then every so often they would change a button here a color here and then before they knew it it was a new design and no one complained and what happened was <laughs> our society changed the design too quickly and everybody noticed it so now that they played their hand too too quickly 
they went full uh, full crazy on Trump and went even more ridiculous on the pandemic, it woke up a lot of people. And so now a lot of people are looking at what's the pattern? The pattern is these people are telling me what my life looks like because of my race or what my life looks like mm-hmm. uh, uh, because of my gender or my sex. And, and nobody else in my life I've ever met speaks like this. <laughs> you right. know, that, that's the thing that I keep, I keep trying to tell people like Twitter, especially is it, it's an ecosystem of outrage and they want you to believe this narrative. They want you to, to, to put on that video. They want you to see a BLM riot and make you believe that every black person agrees with BLM. And I go around and I meet black people. None of them agree with this shit. <laughs> you know, it, it's all these narratives. It's all these false narratives that they want you to believe so they can control you and manipulate you. So um, to, to go back to the song, I think he's echoing what what every regular person, especially now, who is especially who has woken up, they see that this is all BS and that the, the wealthy are the ones, the oligarchs are the ones who are trying to tell us what to do and control us. And it's always, always, always about resources and power. Mm. Well said. Well said. A whole lot there. Yeah. <laughs> every yeah, war, yeah. every war in my lifetime has been about resources and power. Every war. So why not a culture war, right? Why not yeah. the, the class war? It's about resources and power. Fifth generational warfare, too. We're no longer fighting with uh, with atomic arms. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to briefly echo what he's... It, it's absolutely intentional that Adam's talking. It's not like a... It's not a misunderstanding. It's not something that sooner or later, you know, everybody went a little too far and common sense will. Pro- no, no, this is designed, a, yeah. a design demolition. And the level of contempt that those uh, with power have over those, you know, whatever, white or black, regardless of your demographic, there's a certain group of people that wants what it wants. It views you as beneath them and or in their way. It's all by design. I think that that that's the thread that ran through everything I just heard from Adam. And if you learn nothing else from what you heard tonight, he's exactly right about this. It's not it's not just kind of a moment in time where we all got a little confused and the, you know, the pixie dust will go off and we'll wake up. No, 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 no. We are part of a grand experiment. We're the rats. You have to decide whether you accept that or not. Hmm. Yeah. Well said, both of you. I completely agree. Michael, what was your thoughts on specifically like the, the verse he chose to, to read out and just, um, you know, Anthony's boldness in general, bring us home. Yeah. So in Anthony's song, that's gone so viral, the, uh, rich men north of richmond a it's not exactly a happy song i mean it's clearly a a song of lamentation where he's just saying man our world is so screwed up in fact the bridge says lord it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me and people like you wish i could just wake up and it not be true but it is so it is sounds very dismal and i i think it's really unique and somewhat precious that he if i can use that word (laughs) it's precious that he chooses deliberately to have in the circumstance that he's been made so popular over a fairly dismal perspective 
he pulls out Psalm 37 and, you know, he chooses to start in verse 12 with the wicked plots against the righteous because that's kind of what it, a lot of his music is writing to. I, I like the message of this psalm that the Lord will not forsake the saints and that we're not forgotten by God. I like the verses that he's reading. I wish he read the whole psalm personally. And if if I may, I'd like to read the first eight verses of Psalm 37. Because I think this applies even more so in the context of what he's saying, the outcry of people who who are looking in the face of wickedness and trying desperately to find some sort of foundation to build ourselves upon. Psalm 37, starting in verse 1. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Mm-hmm. I think that's the message. See, brother, we've come full circle. Mm-hmm. We've it, we've come full circle. What he you mentioned the word dismal uh, before, but what? But not desperate. We started off talking about mm-hmm. people who commit suicide, and we all agreed on some level that that that's the that, that's where godlessness ultimately takes you. Mm-hmm. This man saying about dismal circumstances about people he know. But why isn't he desperate? Why isn't he part of that statistic? Maybe some people he knows are, but why isn't he? What did he do after describing it? He pulls out the word of God. That that's mm. the whole ball game. We we aren't none of us are fool enough to believe if we have any understanding of history, both secular and biblical, that just because you believe in God, everything goes your way all the time. But the hope is that it's it's overriding all of that. It is the thing that governs all of that. This is what he's showing. Full stop. That I, This is bad. I want it to be better, but it's not going to break me. It's never going to break me yeah. See, because that is my shield. That That's the difference. That's why he isn't a statistic. That's why he isn't six feet under yet at his age, because he's pulling out a weapon that is his guitar, that is the word of God. We all have the same avenues. I can't play it. You know, I can't play a tune, but I am lucky enough to have a show. The four of us are doing it in our own way uh, right now. We, I mean, New Jersey, Iowa, what, Kentucky? Is that it? Yep. Where the podcast is from? Uh, Tennessee. Both Tennessee and Kentucky. Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Tennessee and Kentucky. So, listen, we, all, all of us uh, have an opportunity uh, to breathe the air we breathe and live in the time that we have, no, whether we can strum a tune or not. He's giving mm-hmm. like this. this we aren't meant to be a statistic. We aren't meant to just be the product of our circumstances. We are created in the image and likeness of God. We need to start acting like it. Hmm. Yeah. Well said. Yep. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, with that, we'll call it a wrap because that's probably the best uh, best note to end on. Dismal, but not desperate. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure speaking with the both of you, having you on. So, Adam, we'll start with you. Where can people go to uh, keep up with everything that you are doing? Uh, yeah, I'm the most active on Twitter, so it's at wrong underscore speak. Uh, and definitely subscribe to my Substack, adambcoleman.substack.com. Uh, and I now have a YouTube channel, so you go to um, youtube.com slash at wrong underscore speak. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm all over the place. Check me out in the New York Post. And uh, you, you, you never know what another uh, podcast you might see me on soon. So, <laughs> All right. That's a big hint. Big hint, everyone. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely check out uh, Adam's writings. He's, uh, he's real good. I really love love your stuff, Adam. Todd, where Thank can you. people go to keep up with you? Oh, it's been a pleasure, guys. You can find me from noon to 2 Eastern time every day on the Steve Day Show on Blaze TV. And on Twitter, uh, I go by the handle Dace Online. That's D-E-A-C-E, Dace Online. Excellent. Michael, where can people find you? Always studying, always learning trying to learn the scriptures but also learn a little bit about uh personal training as well it's a fun little side gig i'm doing awesome well thank you everyone for listening some of you in the chat shara grog i saw you both jump in there a little bit late welcome in um grog you asked a great question what are some suggestions for attainable actions people can take to improve their church i would honestly just say for now for the sake of being brief at the end of the podcast i would just say read your bible know it well memorize scripture let it actually permeate your heart and live it out. And uh, there's a lot more that we can talk about in a future time. Michael and I are actually going to be doing some content uh, similar on that coming real soon. So be on the lookout for that. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Wherever you consume our content, feel free to join us sometime on Rumble or YouTube for a Monday Night Live if you want to be in the chats. If you're listening on one of our podcast platforms, feel free to uh, like this video, uh, give it a five-star rating, and uh, we really appreciate your support. We'll see you next time.